several places in the New Testament. First from Matthew 16, the verses 24 through 28. I alluded to these verses also this morning, and we'll, we'll look at them again this afternoon. Matthew 16, verse 24 Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it again. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Then let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Second Corinthians four, verse seven. Through chapter five, verse ten. There Paul is talking about his ministry together with the other apostles, defending that ministry and describing what it's like to, to be serving in that capacity as apostle. And his own weakness and yet God's strength through him. So that's the context for the, the reading. Second Corinthians 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure, the treasure of the gospel, in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you." Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal." For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. 
For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So far from Second Corinthians. And finally, let's turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 20. Revelation 20, beginning in verse 11, and reading through chapter 21, verse 8. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son." But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So far, the word of God. 
As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 43. In service, we turn to the Heidelberg Catechism as a summary of the Christian faith to consider again the the basic and essential truths of the Christian faith. And this afternoon, we find ourselves in Lord's Day 22 concerning the resurrection of the body as we work through the Apostles' Creed. That's on page 536 of your books of praise. There the question is, what comfort does the resurrection of the body offer you? Not only shall my soul after this life immediately be taken up to Christ my head, but also this my flesh, raised by the power of Christ, shall be reunited with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body. What comfort do you receive from the article about the life everlasting Since I now already feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, I shall, after this life, possess perfect blessedness, such as no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived, a blessedness in which to praise God forever. So far, the Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostles' Creed just brims over with hope. It concludes with that statement that we just read. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And that isn't just a a theological statement. When we read this 2,000 years later, it's, it's easy to forget that they first said that right in the face of death. The Apostles' Creed is the confession of the early church. And they said this, or at least some of them said this, right as they faced the reality of death at the mouths of lions in front of cheering crowds as they were bound together with their families to be torn apart in that way. Or as they were set on fire in the palaces of Nero or killed in the many other ways that the early Christians were. It's almost a statement of defiance. Go ahead, take us, lead us like sheep to the slaughter. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. It's a statement of comfort for those who've lost their loved ones. We know our God will watch over their bodies. He will bring them to life again. And we will see one another also again. And we will live together in in the presence of God. Well, we don't often, because we recite the creed so often, we don't often think about all these things with the same depth of conviction and depth of meaning that many of the early Christians would have had on their minds as they recited this. But that was certainly the world that it was written in. At the same time, it's not as if this scriptural promise about the resurrection of the body was only given because God's people were facing death. In fact, I would argue it's more the other way around. The reason that they faced death with such boldness as they did is precisely because they had this kind of conviction. The promise of the resurrection and the promise of the life everlasting, it's not given to us just so that we could sort of pick it up and use it from time to time when when a loved one passes away and we feel like we need that hope. No, the New Testament 
brims over with this promise of the resurrection and the life everlasting in order that that hope would take hold of our minds so that it would take command of our lives and ultimately so that we wouldn't only die as a people with hope in the resurrection but so that our entire lives would be shaped and determined by that hope that our our goals and our priorities during our life would be a testament to that hope that we believe in the life everlasting That's what you see in someone like Paul, the way we saw him already this morning, saying, I count everything as loss for the sake of, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, in order that I may gain him and be found in him, in order that by any means possible I may attain that resurrection from the dead. It was that confidence and that hope in the resurrection that shaped Paul's entire life. It wasn't only his comfort at the moment of his death. It was his hope that shaped his entire life. And God makes this promise in Scripture so clear so that it would also do the same for us, that this would be a hope that would shape the way that we live our lives. It isn't only for the grieving. The the promise of the resurrection is for young people, for those who still have to make their major life decisions and figure out what is it that they're going to live for. The, the promise of the resurrection is for young families who have to decide what matters the most in our homes, who have to teach their children what does it mean to, to live as a Christian. The promise of the resurrection is for the middle-aged, for those who who now find themselves as examples to the younger members of the church and need to show them what it means to live a life of of hope in the resurrection. The promise is also for grandparents who teach their grandchildren what matters the most in life, who want to instill those lessons in their grandchildren before they themselves are called home to glory. So the hope of the resurrection isn't only for the dying or the grieving, and it shouldn't be something that only those facing death think about. It's given for all of us to determine what we will live for. And it may even be given to some of us so that we would have the courage to boldly give up our lives if God should so call us to do. And that was certainly the case for many of the first Christians who confessed this creed. And that's why I chose to read from Matthew 16, even though we worked with those words in some detail this morning They speak so clearly, and they're such a testament to the resurrection. Whoever would seek to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, so that's his life here on earth, will save it. In in those words, there's a promise of the resurrection. And if you believe that, it's a life-transforming truth. There is a life that will be saved that is worth dying for now on this side of eternity. And we see Paul in Philippians. Paul believed that promise. And that's what you see also in in 2 Corinthians 4 and 5. He says in chapter 4 verse 17, "This, this light momentary affliction. Consider what Paul was going through when he wrote those words. 
this light momentary affliction is producing for us a weight of glory that is beyond all comparison as we look to the things that are not seen as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen Paul didn't believe in the promise of the resurrection only in order to comfort himself in his sufferings. No, it was really the other way around. The reason he suffered was because he believed in the resurrection. It's a life-changing and life-transforming hope. And so that's what we also then give our attention to this afternoon. And I titled the sermon, I gave it this theme, In Christ We Have Life now, and a glorious future forever. We'll see first our our comfort, our immediate comfort for the present, and that is that it is better to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That's language from 2 Corinthians 5. And then we'll see, both in this chapter and in the Revelation to John, our inheritance in the future, the dwelling place of God that will be on earth. So there is a twofold comfort here, and I hope you can pick up on that. If you were to ask Paul, Paul, what's your hope? I don't think he would hesitate. It's right there in, in verse 14 in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, My hope is that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. That was his hope. The resurrection of our bodies and living in the presence of Christ. That has always been the Christian hope. But there's a twofold nature to that hope. And that's what we see him explaining in the beginning part of chapter 5. He says, for in this tent, he's referring to, to our body, he calls it a tent. So he's using a metaphor of, of buildings and tents. He says, in this tent we groan, we long to put on our heavenly dwelling. So we groan in this body. To carry this body, this broken sinful body, is a burden. He he says, again in verse 4, while we are still in this tent, we groan, we are burdened. This tent is a burden, it's, it's sinful, this body, it's broken, it's inclined towards sin. And with all the sinfulness that's bound up within it, it needs to go. I need to put this body down. But then Paul, Paul makes a, an important clarification there. We shouldn't think that Paul is just against bodies in general. And many people did believe that in that time. The body is, is, is a lower thing. It's something that we should shed for the ultimate hope of being free from our bodies. That's not the hope that ran through Paul's mind. Many people would have considered the body inferior, and it was a good thing to be liberated from the body. But Paul clarifies, he says, we groan, but not for that reason. Not because we want to be unclothed, so without a body. We groan because we want to be further clothed. We don't want to escape from the body. We want a new body. We want uh, an eternal, immortal body. This body, yes, it's broken. I need to put it down. I need to leave this body behind. But it's not because I want to live forever without a body. It's because I have hope in a much better one. So that's, that's Paul's twofold hope. The resurrection, the, the ultimate hope is the resurrection of our bodies, the glorification also of our bodies. But then you notice 
that isn't Paul's immediate expectation. He has his hope and he has his immediate expectation. His immediate expectation is to be left for a time unclothed as he leaves his body behind to go to be with Christ. He says in verse 6, We know that while we are at home in this body, we are away from the Lord. That's the least ideal situation. To be at home, yes, we have a body, but we're away from the Lord. And, and so the, the immediate expectation and hope of all Christians is to be at home with the Lord, which is better, and yet to be away from the body, which is not going to be easy. Paul's desire is to be clothed with a new body. But he knows that isn't going to happen right away. So it leaves him with a choice. What do I choose? To, to have my body, which is good. It's natural. God made me to want my body, to, to live in a body. Do I want that, or, but that together with being away from the Lord? Or would I prefer to be with the Lord and away from the body? Paul's very honest. It wasn't his desire to be unclothed. And it isn't our natural desire either. Yes, we, we do groan because our bodies grow old and, and weak and frail. And they don't function like, they're, like they were made to function. So we know we need new bodies. But it isn't our desire to leave the body behind altogether. And so he says, we know that while we're at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. And then he says in verse 8, and yes, we are of good courage and would, would choose this option. We would choose to be with the Lord and away from our bodies if that's the choice that we have to make. And it is. That's the choice that every Christian will be faced with. We, we go to heaven immediately after our death and we will be away from our bodies, which is not easy. And yet it's still much better. So we need to understand Paul's, Paul's dilemma there. He's not faced with a perfect choice. If he had the choice, his choice would be to be clothed and with the Lord. But he says, it's better if I have to choose to be with the Lord and unclothed than to be clothed and away from the Lord. And that's, that's the struggle that all of us as Christians find ourselves in. It isn't natural for us to want to die. Death is our, our enemy. It's an intruder in our lives. The earth is our home. It's not normal to want to leave the earth behind. And many Christians, when they face their death, they can often feel ashamed for, for having that desire to, to hold on to their bodies and to hold on to this life. But it's a natural, God-given desire. And so we feel that tension. It's hard to give up our bodies and to give up our time here on earth. We weren't made to live in heaven. We were made to live on earth. And it's hard then to, to give that up. And that's why, when, that's why I said a few weeks ago, perhaps you remember, that, that in that sense, heaven is not yet perfect. That's not to mean that it isn't gloriously wonderful. It certainly is. And it's perfect in the sense that there is no sin. And you can see that it's far better than this life. We see that in Paul. We saw that in Philippians 2. He says, My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. There's no question that throughout the New Testament, that we who belong to Christ, when we die, we go to be with the Lord. And that is far gloriously better. 
It's as the psalmist also say, your steadfast love is better than life itself. Whom do I have in heaven but you? And on earth there's nothing I desire besides you. That is our, our, our far better choice to go and to be with the Lord. But that isn't our ultimate destination. Paul says it himself, to be with the Lord is better than anything else. But even better than that still is the Lord coming home to us, dwelling with us on the new earth as we live in our bodies. That's the ultimate hope to which we're headed. It isn't our desire to be unclothed. It's our desire to be clothed with a new immortal body in a new earth and to then be at home on the earth in our bodies and with the Lord. That's the ultimate goal to which we, for, for which we hope. There, there's this very strange teaching that somehow has become popular in, in, in general North American Christianity, and you often see it in Hallmark cards, and, and sometimes you hear about it in country music as well, that when we die, we'll, we'll go and spend eternity in the clouds with these cute little angels playing our harps and, and singing and floating around like little disembodied souls. Well, that, that picture of eternity is so far from the description of our hope that you find in the New Testament. For one thing, angels aren't cute at all. They're mighty and and terrifying. But even more, our stay in heaven, our stay without our bodies, is a temporary stay. That's not where we will spend eternity. Our hope is for the resurrection of our bodies when we'll return to this earth. And Christ will be with us here in this earth, reigning together with us. The idea that, that this body is something that, that should be shed so that I can be free from it and float around in heaven, that's not a Christian idea at all. It's, it's, a, it's an idea that's rooted in Greek philosophy, that the body is somehow bad. You don't find that at all in Scripture. Now, it, it is true, I should clarify, that Christ did say to the Sadducees at one point that, In heaven, we will be like the angels in the sense that we won't be married and we won't be given in marriage anymore. And perhaps there are other respects as well. But the unanimous testimony of every book of the New Testament is that we are awaiting not an eternity in heaven without our bodies, with our souls in heaven, but an eternity on the new earth in resurrected bodies. That's the hope that the New Testament looks forward to. And there are passages in, like this one in 2 Corinthians and in Philippians where Paul does talk about the immediate comfort that we as Christians do have. It's true, we will be comforted, gloriously comforted in the presence of God. But the ultimate hope that's set before us is not in heaven, it's beyond heaven in the resurrection. Now, I emphasize this point so much because this error is so persistent in contemporary Christian theology. There's this old gospel song that says, this earth is not, this, this world is not my home, I'm just passing through. But the reality is in fact almost the exact opposite. Heaven is not our home. We'll just be passing through. God made us to live here on earth. It's true, Paul says in another place, our citizenship is in heaven, but that's our citizenship, not our residence. Our residence is here on earth. And the whole point, as we're going to see in a couple weeks as we get to that passage in Philippians, 
our whole, the whole point of that is that we're called to live here on earth and to bring the kingdom of God from which our citizenship comes to bring that kingdom here to earth. This is our home. That's why we're also taught to pray, your kingdom come, not your kingdom go. Your kingdom come here on earth. And that's where the kingdom is coming, and that's where Christ will reign eternally. He's going to be here on earth, on the new earth to be sure, but here on earth. This earth is our home. It's like what Paul says in Romans 8 as well. This, this present earth is in the pains of childbirth. It's, it's waiting for a much better chapter. It's waiting to be set free from its bondage to corruption, from the curse it received after Adam sinned. And so the, the, even the saints in heaven, for all the joy and all the glory that they experience, which is far better than this earth, even they wait for the day when they will be rejoined with their bodies and they will be glorious, resurrected bodies. Heaven is not the final goal. And the saints in, in heaven are very much aware still of the suffering that still exists on earth. In Revelation 6, you can hear about them crying out to God for, for justice, for vengeance against their persecutors. They look forward eagerly to the day when Christ will return to earth and the earth will be made new and purified by fire and they will finally receive their bodies again. We were made to live in our bodies. And so that's where we'll spend the last few minutes of our time this afternoon on, on the new earth and what scripture speaks or what scripture says about the new earth. Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. I admit that makes it kind of hard to preach on. I have to admit, and Scripture forces me to admit, I don't actually know what I'm talking about because my heart hasn't even imagined it. But we can work with the, the limited things that Scripture does tell us. We do have many questions about what life will be like on the new earth. During Jesus' days on earth, there were two main groups among the Jews. We saw that also this morning. The, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And because they both hated Jesus, we often sort of lump them together as if they, they were best buddies. But in fact, they were almost mortal enemies. They were very, very different groups. The Sadducees were the liberal Jews who had bought into Greek ideas, among which was the rejection of the body. The body's bad, so they, they rejected the, the idea of the resurrection. And the Pharisees were the religious fundamentalists. And, and these people did not get along until Christ came. And, and then they got along because they had a common enemy in Christ. And these, these Sadducees, they didn't believe in spirits. They didn't believe in angels or demons either for that matter. And, and at one time they confronted the Lord Jesus on this point about the resurrection and the new earth. You can read about this in Matthew 22. And so they invented this story about a woman who had seven husbands, each one passing away, and she got married again and again. And then they asked him, well, whose husband will she be on the new earth in the resurrection? It's kind of a, a question that maybe you've wanted to ask some of these country singers as well, where they talk about how, honey, you will wait for me when I get to heaven and so forth. You, you sometimes wonder what Bible these people are reading because there, Jesus said very clearly there is no marriage in heaven. 
Now, I recognize that it's hard to imagine it being a better world from our earthly perspective now. Many of us might think, is that really a better earth, an earth in which there will be no marriage? Many, many young people, especially engaged couples, as they look forward to, uh, to heaven, they almost, wait that, they almost hope that Jesus will wait just a little bit longer so that at least they can get married first, and then, and then the new earth can come, because we, we tend to imagine there's no better world than the world in which we live now. But what we forget is the wisdom and the power of God. The God who prepared this earth and made this earth as wonderful as it is, has the wisdom and the power to make a world that will be far, far better, such that we might even look on this day, look on this present reality from that day and say, man, this was nothing at all compared to the new earth. And that's, that's sort of the point that the Lord Jesus made to the Sadducees as well. Now, they were making the opposite error as these, these country singers But it was rooted in the same thing. They didn't understand scripture and they didn't understand the power of God. And that's Jesus' response to them. He says, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. They didn't know the scriptures because the scriptures clearly speak of a resurrection. You think of what Job said in one of his lowest moments as he experienced the the affliction that he did. He says, still I know that my Redeemer lives and on the last day he will take his stand on the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see him, I will see God. Daniel, too, speaks of the final resurrection, and so do many of the Psalms. And so Jesus rebuked the Sadducees, you don't know the scriptures. And further, he says, you don't know the power of God. And maybe that's a point that's worth reflecting on for us as well. If we hear Jesus' words, for example, about there not being marriage in heaven and many of the other things that we enjoy on this earth may not be there in heaven. And maybe that leads us to find ourselves not really looking forward to to the, the new earth. But Jesus' point is simply this. If God was able to create this world with all of its beauty and all of its pleasure and all of its glory, if God was able to create the highest mountains and the smallest insects with all their complexity and the perfect mechanical workings inside all of them. And if God was able to design human marriage and sexuality with all of its mystery and beauty and wonder, then what makes us think that God couldn't do the same ten times, a hundred times more gloriously on the new earth. And that's what Jesus' point was. You don't even know the power of God. The unbelieving author Mark Twain, he once said, well, y'all can go to heaven if you want. I'd rather go to Bermuda. And many of us might even sympathize with, with that with that idea, because we have that wrong idea of, Christ, uh, of heaven that Christ, many Christians have, that it's just going to be an eternity of sort of floating on the clouds playing harps. Who wouldn't choose Bermuda over that? But Mark Twain was wrong. He didn't know the scriptures nor the power of God. Broken, fallen Bermuda is nothing compared to the new heavens and new earth that God will create. The beauty of this fallen, broken, cursed, sinful world is nothing compared to the beauty 
of that new earth. Here on earth, all of our pleasures, even our best pleasures, are limited, and they are usually very short-lived. Delicious food is wonderful, but then it's soon gone. Sex may be beautiful, but it too is filled with disappointment and selfishness, and it too passes away with time. The pleasures of youth and the the joy of having strength, those are delightful things, and yet we find we we very quickly grow old. Our bodies get filled with pain. Many of us are even born with pain and weakness and disability. And in a way, in a certain sense, those who are born with that are blessed because they already know not to set their hopes on this world. The rest of us often have to discover that as we go into our old age. But, but all of us will learn that lesson. All of us will grow old. All of us will face death. All of us, as, as Psalm 103 says, all of us are like a flower of the field that grows and then very quickly disappears. Even Mark Twain in his old age experienced great pain and great depression. Well, when, God, when God cursed the earth, he set a limit to the pleasures that we experience in this life so that we would not worship the creation but instead turn back to the creator and learn to find our deepest joy, our greatest treasure in him. It was for our our good that God cursed the earth so that we would turn to him and find true satisfaction in him. Well, Revelation 21 gives us a a small picture of that new earth. And it gives us a picture in symbols. And so we we have to be careful with what we deduce from that. It says that it gives the dimensions of the city and the streets of gold. And it says there's no sea anymore. But we should remember that Revelation is a book of of symbols. And so we keep that in mind. We we exegete that with, with some caution. But there's one thing that very clearly isn't symbolic. And that's what you read in, in verses 3 and 4 of Revelation 21. He says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. The beauty of our eternal home is beyond description. And God has left that by and large to to be a surprise for us. We know it is incomparable with this present world. Especially with all the brokenness in this present world. We may think of the glorious mountains on the new earth. And hiking through some of those mountains. Far more glorious than the ones here on this earth. And without the pain and the weakness that we experience. As we hike those mountains on this earth. We may think of the, the places on, on this earth that we have most loved. Or the, the most delicious foods that we've ever enjoyed in the company of brothers and sisters in the faith and imagine how much better not only the food and and the comp- not only the food will be but also the company of the saints throughout the ages the church the saints who have gone through the struggles hundreds of years before us we, on this earth, we, we can be left in wonder when we see the glory of God in a thunderstorm or in a tornado. 
And yet God's glory on the new earth may be even more wonderful and and awesome, and yet it will be wholly unthreatening. It will be awesome and beautiful, and yet not a threat at all. And especially those who, who in this life are already now beset with weakness and illness and with pain and and with dysfunctional bodies and dysfunctional minds that don't work like they're supposed to, how they will run and how they will leap for joy on that new earth. Imagine how those who are now beset with mental illnesses and weaknesses, how much more they will enjoy the strength and clarity and peace of mind, not only that the rest of us enjoy, but even so much more strength and clarity and peace. The heart of man, again, as Paul says, cannot even imagine the world that God is preparing for those who love him. We never, we never would have had the imagination even to design the world in which we live in now. How can we imagine what God has prepared on the new earth? And notice, brothers and sisters, what is the the central reason for the joy and the celebration in the new earth. It isn't even being united with our bodies, though that is our hope. It isn't even the the, the beauty of the new earth as such. The thing that Revelation 21 focuses on the most is the presence of God together with us. Christ will dwell with us here on earth. That is the greatest reason for celebration. Is there anything better than to be in God's presence? As we saw Paul saying in Philippians 2, I count everything as loss in order that I may gain Christ Jesus my Lord. Now, we, here on this earth, then, we should train that spiritual instinct that you see in someone like Paul. We do look forward to our resurrected bodies, and we should. That's a hope that God has given us to look forward to. And we look forward to the new home on the new earth that we will inherit. But we should make sure we never look forward to those things more than we look forward to being in the presence of Christ and enjoying the favor of God. That's what we were made for above everything, to know God, to love God, and to live with Him. As the Westminster Confession says, our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And you could even put those two things together and say, our chief end is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. That's what God made us for on this earth, and that's what God is preparing for us on the new earth, to enjoy God forever and glorify Him by so doing. And we ought to look forward to that more than to anything else. The more that we grow in our love for God already now, the the more valuable and, and precious He becomes to us now, the more He is glorified by us. And then the more we fix our hope on that reward, which is he himself. And so you notice in in verse 6 in Revelation 21, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. What better inheritance is there than that one? And so, one last thing then to notice along the same lines, 
One of the greatest joys of that day on the new heavens and new earth is that we will finally be free from sin as we live in the presence of God. The Lord says, again, the one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. Well, what does it mean to be God's child? It means to become like him, to resemble him the way that a child resembles his father. I don't even know what it's like to not be able to sin, to not even feel the force of temptation to sin. It's, it's unimaginable to me. Sin is, is so deeply ingrained in our broken, fallen nature. We sin in thousands of ways that we don't even notice. And those sins cause damage to us and to the others with whom we live. Sin robs us of our joy. Even in, in the most beautiful places on earth, the, the worst part about those places is the sin that dwells in me while I'm in those places. Can you imagine what it's like to not even be able to sin? That thought ought to be a deep treasure to us. It may not be a treasure for those who aren't engaged in the fight against sin, but for those who who are not content with their sin, for those who are daily, earnestly engaged in that battle against their sin, who recognize how their sin ruins them, how their sin robs them of their joy and creates distance between them and God, who grieve their sin. For them, the thought of being finally without sin, without even temptation to sin, that is a glorious hope indeed. And that's where we should end then. The Apostle John says, Beloved, we are God's children, already here and now. And what we, what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself already now as he is pure. That hope is the hope that's written all over the New Testament. It's the deepest Christian desire to be like God in his holiness, to be recognizably his children. We know that we we are his children because Christ has bought us, but we also know that we don't always resemble our Father. And that should be the Christian's deepest desire, to begin resembling our Father, to begin to look like his children and to enjoy that fellowship of holiness with him, to enjoy being as God is and knowing that God delights in that. And John says, everyone who hopes, who has that hope, purifies himself as God is pure. If that's our hope, then we will already now, as we wait for the new heavens and the new earth, we will already now begin working to purify ourselves. If that's our inheritance, we should already now be preparing ourselves for it. Why would we cling to sin on earth that we know we won't be able to have in the new heavens and new earth that cannot exist there in the presence of God? That's why John says elsewhere, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning has either, known, has either seen him or known him. It's not that we become sinless instantaneously, but as we see Christ, we lose our desire for sin because we know that that has no place in his presence. So brothers and sisters, let us set our sights on that eternal inheritance. This light 
momentary affliction that we experience now, it's producing for us a weight of glory that is beyond all comparison as we look to the things not that are seen, but that are unseen. Let's say again with Paul, I count all things as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, and being found in Him. The inheritance that I have in Him is far beyond all comparison. It's worth the fight now, the fight for perseverance. And it's worth treasuring Him with all that I have now. So let us desire His holiness and desire to become like Him Already now, let's make every effort to be found in Him, counted together with Him, not seeking to save our lives on this side of eternity, but fixing our hope like those first Christians who gave up their lives to the lions or the fires, fixing our hope on the life to come, desiring with all our heart the thing that God Himself considers valuable above everything else, that is, Himself, desiring Him. As the psalmists say, your steadfast love is better than life itself. How much better than eternal life with his steadfast love. Fix your eyes on that hope. Amen. Let's sing together.